So today we will be looking at John chapter 12 from verse 9 through to 19. And I will read that out now. John chapter 12, verses 9 to 19. This is the word of the Lord. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, imagine uh, King Charles making his grand entrance to Australia. And I would personally love to see um, this particular entrance, not because I'm a great fan of King Charles, but I would love to see uh, the royal official King Charles arriving in Australia on a Jetstar flight up the back of economy, going through customs like everyone else, waiting to pick up his luggage and then just entering into Australia like any other person. And I think what would be wonderful about that is that it would be truly humble circumstances. It would show the, the humanity, you might say, of the king. It would be uh, really unthinkable to see a king like that arriving in Australia like any other person in such humble circumstances. Now, we see something far greater, if we were to ever see that, we see something far greater than that in the entrance of Jesus. This is the king of the universe, namely the king of Israel here, entering into his city on a donkey in truly humble circumstances. So our context here is Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. He has just been anointed by Mary in the most extravagant way. We went over this last week. It's a beautiful picture in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 12, where Mary uh, pours out an annual salary's worth of perfume upon Jesus to show how treasured he is. And now there is a growing crowd ready to receive him. We see this in verse 9. There is a large crowd. The crowd continues to build in anticipation because they've seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead or they've heard that he has raised Lazarus from the dead. Add to that the fact that it's Passover time. We're a Passover time in Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem estimates range from at least five times to ten times. So if Jerusalem was around 100,000 people, it could be up to a million people flocking into the city or up to two million, some people say. It is the busiest time of the year. There is a huge crowd 
And this is the background of Jesus entering into his place, to his city. Now, because it's Passover, every religious festival for the people of Israel brings this heightened sense of ethnic zeal, this fervor for their country. And they're longing for the promised Messiah. And Messiah is basically their idea of their king, their divine king. Messiah means anointed one. The king was going to be the one anointed by God to rule over their people. And so with this ethnic fervor and their longing for the king, here is the background for Jesus's entrance. And what we see is in their longing for their king, in the the Jewish people's longing for their Messiah, We have seen time and time again throughout John's gospel that their longing for their Messiah is not necessarily consistent or compatible with the type of Messiah that Jesus is. So remember in John 6, after he feeds the 5,000, the people literally try and make him king by force. And Jesus gets out of there. He disappears because he's not going to be made king like that. He's not going to please their natural and selfish desires. The triumphal entry of Jesus that we see here reveals the true type of king that Jesus is. And this is what we're going to primarily look at today. We'll see this through three lenses or three vantage points. We firstly see how does the king enter? How does he come? Secondly, why does the king enter? What is the reason? What is his purpose? What is he going to achieve? And then lastly, who are the king's people? Who is this king coming to? So let's look firstly from verse 12 at the main passage of our text here at the triumphal entry. Jesus enters into Jerusalem and the people take uh, palm branches and they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, the palm trees are like the closest thing that uh, you could get in Israel to basically waving a national flag. Over the course of a few hundred years after probably the last prophet in like the fourth or fifth century BC, at some stage then, these palm branches that were typical with the Feast of Tabernacles just evolved into this... um, ethnic uh, flag, this sort of um, passionate fervor for Israel. So waving palm trees are this very clear thing, uh, consistent or um, only to do with Israel, like how you might wave an Australian flag today. And then Hosanna, this cry of praise. Hosanna is a cry of salvation. It literally means Uh, Save us now. It's from Psalm 118, verse 25, where you have save us now. And in Hebrew, that that, uh, word or that construction is literally hoshiana, where we get hosanna, which is saying, save us now. Save us, please, Lord. So as they're crying out for salvation, singing hosanna, singing the psalm, Psalm 118, that they would have sung at every festival, They're longing for their king. And then in comes Jesus on a donkey showing just what kind of king he is. So as the masses of people look on, let's now just take a real close look at exactly how 
the king comes to his people. So firstly, let us look at how the king enters. Number one, he enters in utter humility. The king enters in utter humility. Kings are expected to make a grand entrance. They ought to come in like a royal parade. They ought to come on some war horses or seated on a large chariot high above everyone else. But Jesus does not do this. He doesn't enter on a war horse. He doesn't have a large chariot with hundreds of royal officials. The God who owns and upholds everything is now in the flesh and he is entering into the city of his own people on a donkey, on a young donkey. In verses 14 and 15, John tells us this this was in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 9, where John records Zechariah 9 as saying, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, the full passage of Zechariah in that verse says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. It is meant to be a picture of humility. And see, the Jewish people were rightly waiting for their king. The Jewish people were rightly waiting for their king, but they had missed these promises which spoke of the sheer humility of their king. And this is what caused many people to stumble. The people continued to look for this physical, assertive, political ruler who was going to take immediate action in restoring Israel and making Israel great again. But Jesus has already shown that this is not his purpose. Look at the way the king comes. The king comes and his purpose in humility is to bring about a kingdom where the true citizens of that kingdom would enter not through a physical victory, but rather they would enter into his kingdom through a spiritual victory, which would actually mean the physical death of their king. Not the physical victory in the world's eyes, but a spiritual victory, which looks like defeat in the world's eyes. This is the upside down kingdom that is the kingdom of God. So this king of the kingdom humbles himself to death on a cross. He humbles himself to serve his own people. It would be like not only King Charles coming in that humbling circumstances I mentioned, but then he enters into Canberra, even into the slums of Tuggeranong, if there are some, and he serves the community He goes into houses. He helps all of the people just in truly humble circumstances. This is the the type of king that Jesus is. He leaves the riches of heaven to come down to the poverty of earth amongst his people. So the king enters in utter humility. Notice, secondly, the king enters amidst great hostility. The king enters amongst great hostility. It's easy to think from this passage alone that Jesus comes into warm praises of adoration. And indeed, we do see in this passage cries of adoration. They're laying palm branches down. They are crying praises toward him. But there are two things we must keep in mind here. The first is that much of the praise that is going on here in verse 13 is likely directed toward their idea of this physical, political Messiah. It's a praise directed toward who they want Jesus to be, not necessarily toward who Jesus actually is. They are desiring a different type of king. And then second thing to notice is that very soon, all of these people who are praising him will have either disappeared 
or their cries of praise will be cries of condemnation as they are at the cross screaming for him to be crucified. Where is all of the praise as Jesus goes up to the cross? Where are all of these people who are crying for their king? They are gone. Jesus doesn't come to warm adoration. The king comes to great hostility. This is the clear theme throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. We see that the religious officials multiple times have condemned him to death. And even now, notice in verse 10, this now extends to people simply associated with Jesus. Poor Lazarus already died once. He's only just been raised to life. And now he has another death sentence over him simply by association with Jesus. See, for every shout of praise toward Jesus, there is another louder shout of antagonism and hostility. We will see that at his coronation, Jesus is not crowned with a royal crown. He is crowned with a crown of thorns. We will see that he is not given kingly robes placed upon him in adoration. He is given robes that are there to mock him and scorn him. All of these cries of praise will be drowned out by cries to crucify him. This is the context that the king comes. And what an accurate picture this paints of mankind in general. Many people like to paint this picture of mankind as though we're innocently crying out for our God. Just help us, God, and and all you have to do is come. And it's as though everyone is just innocently misguided. We really would love for God to come but he's just not doing enough to come and save us. That's a fallacy. That's a fairy tale. That's not the reality of mankind. The true picture of mankind is that we are rebellious and antagonistic toward him. Your life may look like it's full of apathy toward him, but at the core of your heart, you are antagonistic and you are rebellious. You are hostile in your mind toward the God of heaven and earth in your natural state. These are the people that the king comes to. He comes to a people who are hostile in their minds. He comes to a people who are sinners rebelling against their God and he comes to them in utter humility and amidst great hostility. This is how the king comes. Let's now look at why the king enters. Here is where I hope you've got your fingers or a bookmark on Zechariah 9 and Psalm 118. We'll firstly look at Psalm 118. Here's where we have to look at the background of these uh, passages. Psalm 118 is the background of verse 13. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Zechariah 9 is the background of verse 15. So let's look at why the king enters. There are three aspects of this as to why the king enters. Firstly, the king enters to save his people. This is clear from the cries of the people. Hosanna means save us. Save us now. So the king comes to save his people. And year after year, the Jewish people would sing these songs of praise, the Hallel, uh, which is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, at most of the festivals they would sing these and it would culminate in Psalm 118, which is where they sing, save us now. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, one of the primary ways that Jewish people longed for their salvation was that they would be saved from the bondage of foreign rulers. 
They were under foreign occupation for centuries and centuries. After their exile in the 6th century BC, they never regained their uh, independence. They were always under foreign rulers and they were longing for the Messiah or the King to come and set them free, to save them. And God is going to save his people. But simply saving his people from foreign occupation, simply saving them physically is like ripping out the tops of weeds and just leaving the root in the ground. It's simply going to come back again. It's not getting to the root of the problem. God's people have a much greater problem than simply Roman occupation. They are separated from God because of sin. They do not have a righteousness that allows them to approach the God of Israel. They do not have a righteousness that allows them to truly come before the Lord. And this is what is foreshadowed in Psalm 118. So if you do have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 118. I'll read it out for you. In Psalm 118, from verse 19, we read, Open to me the gates of righteousness so that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. So listen to this here. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to Yahweh. What is the problem for God's people that we see in this passage? The problem is that the gates of righteousness are not opened. The problem is that there is no one opening the gate so that the righteous can enter through The problem is that they need to be saved because on the other side of the gate of righteousness is unrighteousness. And where there is unrighteousness, there is condemnation and punishment. But the psalm shows God's answer. The psalm goes on to say, this is the gate of Yahweh. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The psalm goes on to talk about how the cornerstone is actually The Messiah, the chief cornerstone whom the builders rejected, that is to say, the one whom the builders rejected is actually the most important piece of the building, the foundation, the cornerstone that holds everything together. And then it goes on to say in verse 25, Save us, we pray, O Yahweh. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Here is everything that lies behind the Jewish cries of Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're longing for someone to open the gates of righteousness. They're longing for someone to open these gates so that people can walk through. And Jesus comes in riding on a donkey to accomplish this. He comes in. The righteous one comes to open the gates. He comes to save his people and he's not ripping out the tops of weeds. He's not simply providing physical comfort to them. He is getting to the root of their problem, which is sin before a holy God. So he is going to open the gates of righteousness by becoming salvation to his people in his sacrificial life, death and resurrection. He comes to truly save his people. And how relevant this is for the way that we in the world often think about our problems. We never seem to get to the root of our problems. We often think our problem is something other than the actual problem. So we often hear language like, well, I'm in a real rut in my life. And what I really need to do is to just find myself. What I really need to do is just find who I really am so that I can be true to myself. What I really need to do is just express my individuality. What I really need to do is just get that job that works for me. 
that job that I'm really gifted in. Or what I really need is to cut that person out of my life so that all my problems will be solved. All of these are just surface level problems. What you need is to be saved from the wrath of a holy God which lies upon you because you have not trusted in Jesus Christ. What you need is a righteousness that can bring you before the very throne of God and find grace and mercy in your time of need. And this is what the king has come to do. He has come to save his people, but he's not pulling weeds out from the top. He is getting to the root of the problem. He has come to save them from their sin. Secondly, the king has not only come to save, he has come to bring peace. Now, here is where we need to look at Zechariah chapter 9. If we look in John chapter 12, the verse in verse 15 is from Zechariah 9. This is after Jesus enters on a donkey. And if we read Zechariah 9, again, it's not far uh, from the Gospel of John, a few books to the left. In Zechariah chapter 9, the context is uh, God speaking of judgment against Israel's enemies. And then there is this beautiful flip. And then from verse 9, Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So notice the main themes that you see in Zechariah 9 in those verses. The main themes are the king coming, the king entering in, and with the king coming will be peace. The passage says wars will actually cease. God will thwart all of his enemies and he will speak peace to the nations. And this was their hope. This was the hope of the Jewish people, that the Messiah King would come and would bring peace. Now, how do we understand this as those who are living about 2,500 years after Zechariah wrote this, at least 2,000 years after Jesus walked on this very earth, he came to bring peace, and yet we experience a great deal of conflict and destruction today. How very pertinent that Zechariah, written to the people of Israel, speaking about peace, and in this very moment, at this very day, in that same very land of Israel, there is great conflict going on, thousands of dead bodies. And it simply looks like it's only ramping up. So how do we understand this, this peace that the king was coming to bring? And here is Jesus entering in 2,000 years ago on a donkey, saying that he's come to bring peace. The same words that he said in Luke 4, that he has come to proclaim peace and captivity, uh, freedom to those in prison, recovery of sight to the blind. How do we understand this peace that the Messiah is bringing? Here's where we have to understand another spiritual reality and a physical fulfillment. Just like a few weeks ago, we went over 
the resurrection, how there is this spiritual resurrection, which is all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. They are brought to life. They are brought from spiritual death to have spiritual life in Christ. And they are set on an unstoppable trajectory toward physical resurrection. Well, here we have a spiritual peace, though there is a physical peace to come. And we have a great hope In all of the wars that are going on in the world right now and wars that will inevitably continue, there is hope that at the very end of the age, Christ will return. He will conquer all of his enemies. He will bring complete justice and there will be complete harmony to everything in this world. There will be no more sorrow, no more suffering. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes in the new heavens and new earth. And we have that wonderful hope. But this is a future reality. The peace that we have now is a spiritual peace. Paul talks about this in Romans 5, where he says, having been justified by faith, that is to say, we have trusted in Jesus Christ and we have been declared right. That's the God of heaven and earth saying, you are right in my sight. Not only are you forgiven, but I look at you as though you have done everything right. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. How incredible is this? We have peace with the God who created everything. Remember, the greatest hostility and conflict man has is because he is a rebel in his heart toward God and God's wrath is upon him. There is no peace apart from Christ. And yet King Jesus has come to remove that hostility by showering us with his grace, by nailing our sin which created that hostility to the cross, thereby making peace. We are are not to neglect the severe physical hostility of this world. We're, of course, not diminishing that. But we must not buy into this false idea that is certainly present in many churches, this false idea that physical peace is a greater priority than having peace before a holy God. The greatest priority is in sinners who have the wrath of God upon them having peace with the living God as they have trusted in Jesus Christ. So we don't deny the importance of living as people who are meant to be peacemakers. We are meant to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers, but actually peacemakers. And we, are, we of course, desire peace amongst the nations of the earth. No one is here saying, let's create more physical hostility. Of course we want peace. But the greatest need of peace is where rebellious people destined for condemnation can be freed from that to have a genuine peace with the living God. A genuine peace to know that there is no more wrath upon you. There is only the Father's good pleasure toward you. To know that. And this is what the king brings about as he enters on a donkey, demonstrating that he is that king of Zechariah 9 who is speaking peace to the nations. So the king comes to save. He comes to bring peace. And thirdly, and finally, as to why the king comes, he comes to shed his blood to atone for sin. Now we see this in the context of Zechariah chapter 9. If we read again in Zechariah 9 from verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. God's people here in Zechariah are pictured as those who are imprisoned. They are held captive They're imprisoned in the waterless pit. They're in desperate need of salvation, but the king comes to set them free from the waterless pit. 
So this is one of the main intentions for the coming of the king. He comes to set prisoners free. And the clear assertion throughout Scripture, there are many passages that we could point to in this, the clear assertion throughout Scripture is that our sin has left us imprisoned or enslaved to that sinful state. We are imprisoned. We can't do anything to please God. Even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before Him. We are held captive. Paul explains this in Romans 7 where he says, there is a war waging within me that imprisons me. He literally says, it imprisons me to the law of sin that dwells within me. He's imprisoned to the law of sin. Our greatest captivity is that we are slaves to sin. We are imprisoned to our fleshly desires. And one of the greatest lies of this age, of this world that we live in, is that freedom supposedly comes by being true to yourself, by being uninhibited, by being able to express yourself as you feel. Being true to yourself is where you can truly follow and express all of these inner feelings that are going on within you. And this is simply slavery to your carnal desires. It is imprisonment to a fleshly appetite that can never satisfy. It's a vicious cycle that imprisons you because every time you follow your own natural desires and you gratify them, you're simply conditioning yourself to have a greater need to gratify that natural desire. Case in point, the way probably a lot of us can barely go an hour without looking at our phones. That was never the case, but at some point we began to look at phones, we began to gratify that desire, and now it's very difficult to cut that. The same thing happens with anything else, with these natural desires that flow from within us. If we continue to follow them, it's a vicious cycle. The only way that that can ever work is if every natural desire within us is good. But the Bible is very clear to say that the heart is not good, the heart is deceitful above all things. The desires that come within us are from a place of rebellion, from a place of antagonism toward God. So to follow our every desire is actually perpetuating a vicious cycle that imprisons us, imprisons us to the flesh. That is until Christ sets us free from slavery to sin. So after Paul in Romans 7 says that he's imprisoned in his flesh, he's imprisoned in the law of sin, he says, but then Christ has come and the law of the spirit of the life in Christ has set me free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus because God has sent his son to come into the flesh to face the condemnation of my sin in the flesh and that has set me free from the law of sin and death. In Christ, there is no law of sin imprisoning us, but rather we are set free to now do what pleases God. We are set free from slavery to sin. And this is by the blood that Christ sheds, which cleanses us from sin. If we come back to Zechariah 9, this is what the passage is talking about. Because of the blood of my covenant, I will set your prisoners free. This was the hope that by the blood of that covenant, prisoners would be set free. And this is what must occur for us to be free from sin, for us to have peace with God. There must be a blood sacrifice because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There must be a blood sacrifice. And this is really getting to the root of the problem. Again, not ripping out weeds from the top. This is getting to the root of the problem. A sacrifice which can wipe away our sin. And remember that in the context of 
John chapter 12 is Jesus riding in. This is Passover time. Where Passover time is where they're remembering how they had to slaughter a lamb and put the blood over the household as the, the destroyer was going to come and destroy the firstborn of every son in Egypt. And the only way that the Israelites were going to be free was if they had the blood of the lamb covering them. Their freedom was not going to be if they had great strength. Their freedom was not going to be if they were warriors. The, the only way they were going to be free is if blood was shed and it was wiped over their household so that the destroyer would not kill their firstborn. And here Jesus comes in. He embodies the Zechariah prophecy of the coming king, and he's about to embody the Passover that they had been celebrating for over a thousand years, where he becomes the lamb who is slain. He becomes the lamb whose blood is shed to cover us and avert the wrath of God from us. It is the blood that covers us. And we have the privilege of seeing this from a much clearer vantage point. If you notice in verse 16, back to our passage in John chapter 12, the disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, it was then that they remembered these things. They did not understand at the time. It was only after Jesus was glorified. We often forget, but we have a wonderful privilege of seeing all of this with not only the scope of all of Scripture, but with countless saints over centuries helping us to understand these things. We understand this now. The disciples at the time didn't even understand that the significance of what Jesus was doing. And though we have a great vantage point today, even now there remains misunderstandings over exactly what Jesus has come to do. Why did he come on a donkey? Why did he come to his own people? We in a similar way now, we often hear people thinking that Jesus simply came to establish peace on earth. Or Jesus simply came to teach us how to live a good moral life. Or Jesus came to help us to love each other better. But what we see here in this passage and with understanding these scriptures is that the primary purpose of Christ was not worldly peace. The primary purpose of Christ was not social reform or racial reconciliation. That was not the primary purpose of Christ. His primary purpose was to glorify God by atoning for sin, by becoming the, the Lamb of God who is sacrificed, who is slain. And only in that would people be reconciled back to a right relationship with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. His primary purpose was to be that sacrificial substitute, to be the King who comes to his own people by laying down his life. He came to open the gates of righteousness so that we may enter through them. He came to bring those who are far off near by the blood of his cross. He came to bring peace between God and man. This is why the king has come. And finally, we've seen how the king comes in utter humility and amidst great hostility. We've seen that the king comes to save his people, to bring peace and to shed his blood to atone for sin. Finally, who are the king's people? Verse 19 tells us the Pharisees say, we're gaining nothing. It's not working because the whole world has gone after him. Now, this is in some part an exaggeration, but they're clearly saying a whole lot of people 
A whole lot of people are flocking to Jesus. And it anticipates verse 20, where we see Greeks come to Jesus, as well as anticipating the whole book of Acts, where all of a sudden the whole world is literally hearing the gospel of Christ. And this is the radical idea of God's kingdom. Think about this. It begins in this thoroughly Jewish context for hundreds and hundreds of years, just amongst Jewish people, with perhaps a few tiny hints of it going out to non-Jews. But for the most part, it is preserved in this totally Jewish context. Gentiles are considered unclean. And then suddenly the king comes and the great mystery is that this is actually for the whole world. This is for all peoples. And look back at Zechariah 9 again, one more time. I'll read this out for you. In verse 13, after we we read through a large chunk of Zechariah 9, in verse 13, it's incredible because that prophecy says, I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. That's what's going to happen when the king comes. God is going to stir up the sons of Jerusalem, the sons of Israel, against the sons of Greece. And this is looking forward in the context of Zechariah to the hostility that was going to come. A few hundred years after that, the Greeks were going to come. Alexander the Great was going to take over the whole world. A man named Antiochus Epiphanes that we looked at in Daniel was going to desecrate the temple He was going to slaughter many Jewish people, and he was from a Greek background. So there would be hostility between Jews and Greeks. There would be gruesome hostility between Jews and Greeks. But what is absolutely incredible is that while there is an extreme level of hostility between Jews and Greeks anticipated here in Zechariah, we know that the hostility ends under the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that when the king comes, there will be peace, not simply for Jews, but for Greeks, which is like saying for Jews and then everyone else. There will be reconciliation. In the gospel, the greatest of enemies become dearly loved brothers. And that's the answer to all the racial and identity issues of today. A very prominent time having the the referendum just a few, just a day ago. And of course, a lot of language about this idea of racial reconciliation. How do we actually be one together? Well, the answer is in not trying to create even more categories for people to identify as. The answer is not in trying to see people through some sort of oppressed and oppressor lens. The answer is not in social reforms that try and give people a handout. The answer for all of those problems is in calling people to a kingdom that transcends every human identity you can think of. The answer is in calling people to a kingdom that not only transcends every human identity, but actually calls us to submit all of those identities, to submit our class status, to submit our ethnicities, to submit our gender, whatever it is, all under the identity that we have in Christ. That is the answer. Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 11, here, that is in Christ, there is no more Greek, no more Jew. There is no more circumcised, no more uncircumcised. There is no more barbarian or Scythian. Those are ethnic groups. There is no more slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. See, the king has come to bring about a kingdom that is the antithesis of the kingdom of this world that is dominated by evil. The kingdom of this world is one that is marked by hostility and the only way that the world can ever bring peace is if people either stay out of each other's way or if they conform to some sort of socially constructed uniformity. That's the only way that they can have peace. 
But the kingdom of God is one that is marked by a peace and unity that comes not because we all think alike and talk alike, but because our allegiance to Christ the King is enough to give us a unity and love that transcends common interest groups and demographics, that transcends all of these things that the world tries to give. The only way that that unity comes is by our common allegiance to this king who brings about a kingdom that transcends all of those things. So the king comes for all peoples, for every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, to call all people to bow before him, to call all people to submit, to repent, to turn from their life of sin, to trust in this king, to trust in his atoning work, to trust in his ability to be the perfect substitute and sacrifice for our sin, to reconcile us to the God of heaven and earth. And so while we see here in our king, the, the utter humility, we see this incredible humility. He, he doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he lowers himself to the form of a servant. We see his sacrifice. We see him come amidst great hostility. But nevertheless, he is a king and he demands allegiance. He demands absolute allegiance to, from every single person and all will bow before this king. We will either bow now or we will bow when he returns and he will return not on a donkey. He will return on a war horse with an almighty army with a robe dipped in blood, with the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will return to take vengeance on all his enemies. And the call for us now, at this moment before he returns, is to bow before him, to look at his great humility, to look at the way he comes amidst great hostility, to look at the fact that he is the only one who can save us. He is the only one who can bring us peace before an almighty God. He is the only one who can forgive our sins by shedding his perfect blood. And this is the king that we worship. And that call goes out today to all who hear to bow before the king, to turn away from your life of sin, to trust in the king who is Jesus Christ.